Evening. It's uh, so good to be together, Storyline. Thank you so much for being here. I love that scene. I saw it last week, and I thought, you know, after telling this weepy story about my wife being my hero last week, that maybe I should balance some things out and bring some perspective to, uh, uh, you know, my life anyways. So that scene, I thought it's amusing for some of us, right? And for those of us who've been married a little bit longer, maybe more than amusing, uh, 28 years, Lisa and I have been married. And uh, our marriage has been a constant source of joy and happiness. <laughs> what did you think I was going to say? Come on. So Lisa does this cute little thing that I do want to tell you guys about that I love so much. She um, often, what's the word? She misplaces, some people would call it loses. I think that's the word, loses her cell phone. Now, I mean, wh why would you put this most important piece of technology in the same spot every time so that you can find it quickly and easily when you need it. Why would you do that when you can, you know, involve your husband who never has anything to do in a frantic search to find your phone because you've got to leave right now, all right? Maybe I've made this suggestion to her, maybe I haven't. But anyways, this delightful scene in our home usually kind of plays out like this. Mike, have you seen my phone? And I reply, no, sweetheart, I haven't. The last time I used it, I put it away. You see how I diffuse the tension there, young husbands? Pay attention, right? So now I get to stop what I'm doing, and it's always the same thing. Call her, right? So I've actually tried to train my phone to just say the usual, so it will call her. And then it's always set to vibrate, of course. And so now it's like stalking a deer. You hear it vibrate, you move towards it. It stops and you have to stop. So where is it, right? Is it, is it out in the car, in the garage? Is it uh, in one of a thousand bags that we have in our home? Is it in her pants pocket, in the bottom of the hamper? Is it in the fridge? These are all places we found her phone recently, by the way. Now, keep in mind, this game is going on while the clock is ticking, just to add to the joy of it all. And by the time she finds her phone, I find myself a little bit... Mm, bothered, let's just say, okay? I'm a little bit bothered. And then Lisa, that's when she does this cute little thing. I just, oh, instead of answering her phone, she sends me this text. Sorry, I can't talk right now. <laughs> oh, we both just think it's hilarious, right? By the way, we do teach a marriage seminar class. There's no one attending now, so, you know, can't imagine why. But anyways, um, I always do when she sends me that text. I always do smile because I was the one who was busy, right? And so she's kind of flipped the script on this situation. She's put, she's put the situation you know, upside down on its head, which is, ex is such a great example of what Jesus is doing in this passage of the Bible that we've been looking at the last month now called the Beatitudes. And um, one of the things that we know from history is that great leaders and, and thinkers and figures often carve like a new path forward. They're like trailblazers. They are often counter-cultural. And so history is full of such people, people like Einstein to Harriet Tubman, from George Washington to Steve Jobs. These are icons, and what did they, what did they do? They bucked the system. Like they went against conventional wisdom. They, they're counter-cultural. And when they, we see that, we think, yes, like, I knew something was wrong with that. And we cheer on folks like that. We all love at times to be counter 
cultural, like it makes us cool, avant-garde, like on the cutting edge, we're early adopters, we're problem solvers, right? Of course, it doesn't always work out that way, right? Some, some new ideas are just really bad, right? Here are some that I found very quickly. I think my favorite may be the baby mop, you know? But Jesus is, t- is totally unique in this regard, okay? Because we think of him like as one of these great leaders throughout history. Um, and he did flip things upside down, but he wasn't really counter-cultural. That's not quite the right, right way to describe him. In fact, he used pop culture all the time toward his own ends. We talked about that last week. So he wasn't an activist. He made no public pronouncements for systemic change. He resisted revolutionary reforms. And believe me, plenty of people and groups tried to recruit him for that. He didn't lead marches or sit-ins. Now, that's not to say that those things are bad. I'm not saying that at all. It's only to say that Jesus leveraged culture as it existed, where he, as he found it, when it served his benefit, when it was useful to him. And then he pretty much ignored it when it wasn't. So he wasn't countercultural as much as he was counterintuitive. I think that's a much better way to describe Jesus, counterintuitive. And that's a much more challenging to us because that isn't challenging something that we always suspected was wrong and we kind of cheer it on like our, our, our countercultural heroes do. Our response to a counterintuitive situation isn't yes. It's much more like no, that, that can't be. And I think that's what's going on with the Beatitudes. People are listening to Jesus in this opening remarks, his first public address, and it's like, everyone's like, what is happening here? You'll recall that we said that the Beatitudes are the opening to his Sermon on the Mount, and the entire thing kind of strikes us that way, is counterintuitive. Jesus is flipping on its head the way that everybody believed and the way that everybody thought about God at the time. So the first beatitude we said, going back a couple weeks ago, it kind of broke the internet of its day, if you will. It's this idea that, that God is already on our side. There's nothing we have to do to get God or cajole him or convince him to be on our side. He loves us simply because we're his. He's come to us. He's removed every, every barrier between us, and he is for us. He's calling us now, and our only question is, How will we answer? How are we going to answer? That's what's before us. The second beatitude, which we looked at last week, faces the reality of that life is really difficult. It's complicated. It's painful. It can be tragic at times. And God's love's no guarantee that our life won't be be that way. But if we'll mourn, if we will express the hard part, to ourselves, to God, with one another, if we will share our full story with people and God, no pretending, no pretense, we will find enormous comfort from one another and from God and even derive meaning in the midst of suffering as we turn that out and serve others with it. So last week we suggested that maybe the first beatitude 
One way to think about it is it's kind of the source of life, the first beatitude. And those that follow are not so much a to-do list, but more like a map, a place to look for God or a way to live that aligns our life with God's ways. It's what helps us to put ourselves on God's side. That's what's happening with this beatitude. And the third beatitude is another step on that map, it's, and it's no less surprising than the first two. Jesus keeps rolling out these counterintuitive hits, if you will. So he follows up, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, with blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now that is not something that we would probably think on our own. This is incredibly counterintuitive. It's surprising. It's, in fact, it's the exact opposite of what we really think when we truly think about something like this. So the question for this morning is, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? How is this a map toward finding ourselves on God's side? Now think about this word, meek. It is such a weird word, right? I mean, when's the last time that you used it? Probably never. And if you ever have used it, it's never been positive, right? This is not something that anyone aspires to be. It is, it is not normally thought of as, um, you know, a compliment. Because when we hear meek, we think weak. We think passive. We think submissive, like a doormat of a person who's just, you know, just disregarded, just stepped over, stepped on, not respected, and nobody wants that. And we know that, like, intuitively from the very beginning of life. Like, psychologists now know, developmental psychologists now know that from a very, very early age, we begin to form our identity. And the way that we do that primarily is through comparison. This is how we do it. If you think about it, it's obvious. We do it through comparison. Like, am I a boy or a girl? Am I fast or slow, tall or short? Am I strong or weak? And we assign self-worth to ourselves based on how we see ourselves like comparing to others. Am I here or here or, or where am I? And it doesn't take long for comparison to take this next step into formal comparison. And we have a word for formal comparison. And that word is competition. That's what competition is. It is formal, standardized comparison. So years ago, I was talking with a colleague of mine, teaching at Lakeshore High School. And I was telling him about how much my three-year-old son, Jimmy, loved to race me in the backyard. Like, you remember, they always want to race. Always, he always wanted to race. And my colleague actually said to me, he go, whose son was about the same age, he goes, my son loves that too. He absolutely loves it. And then he said, he said to me, I just love seeing the joy on his face when he wins. And I must have had this look on my face that kind of gave this away because I know what I was thinking. I was thinking, man, his three-year-old is going to be like an Olympic sprinter. Or this guy is super slow. I mean, getting beat by a three-year-old. And so he saw this look on my face, and he goes, well, I let him win. Like, don't you? And, uh, <laughs> and so I said, um, 
no, I don't let him win. I don't let my son win. Now, we had a long and very interesting discussion about this, and he had some really good points, and there's no doubt about it. But I told my friend this. I, I see at least two problems with letting our kids win. And the first one is they're only going to run as fast as they need to, not as fast as they can. And so I know my kid's running as fast as he can. I know your kid's only running as fast as he needs to, right? And then the second thing I said is, by letting them win all the time, aren't we communicating that the most important thing to be is the best, as opposed to doing your best? Which I thought were two pretty good points. I don't think they um, convinced him, but um, that's, that was my thinking when my kids were little. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like when I was playing my three-year-old in the driveway and blocking every shot, you know, or just striking him out every time. <laughs> take that, you know, go home to mom, you know. I'm not saying that, okay? I only did that like half the time, right? But generally speaking, Lisa and I wanted our children to compare themselves to their own best efforts, to their own best efforts, not where they compared or stacked up to other people. And believe me, I'm not bashing competition, I love to compete. The guys I play ball with, basketball with in the mornings will tell you that I'm really competitive. I try really hard. And when I lose, I'm a bad loser. I grew up with a dad who said, you show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. Right? <laughs> and so I took that to heart. So I'm a bad loser. I promise you, there is no, what did that kid call me the other? There's no priest in this area that cusses more under his breath when he loses than me. All right? So um, I, I get it. Competition, it. competition matters. It's important. It's helpful. It, it, it can bring out our best. But the competition that matters most, in my view, is, compare, is not comparing ourselves to others. It's or how fast they are, how, how strong they are, how generous they are compared to me. But how fast, strong, generous, competent, how, how generous I am compared to who I could be. That, to me, seems to be a, a higher bar. And, and there's a trap door to competition that we don't always see, to, to comparing and competing with others to measure ourselves. Because when we do that, if that's the way that we kind of discern our identity and who we are and where we fit in, when we win, we might become arrogant, right? And this is our response to life. Like, sorry, you know, you're not good enough. Or we'll lose and become despondent. In neither case are we being meek. Meek is neither one of those. It's clearly, obviously, not being arrogant. But it's not also being despondent. It's not also thinking poorly of yourself. In both cases, our identity, our self-worth, is based on how we stack up against others. But when we shift, from identities based on being the best to identities based on being our best, or really, maybe a better way to say it, is our truest, deepest selves, meekness begins to grow in us. And meekness is not weakness. In fact, I was, I was looking up like the origin of the word, and it's really the exact opposite of weakness. This is what meekness means. It is strength, competence, power, 
held in reserve to be used for the good of others. I love that. It's strength, uh, competence, power held in reserve to be used for the benefit of others. This is not how we intuitively use our power, our competitive advantage, right? Like we don't hold it back until we can serve others with it. We unleash it like as soon as possible to help us win, to help us benefit right now. This seems to make sense it, to be the path toward the good life. Except when we see people, when we look at other people and they live their lives that way, when they store up their power and their competence just for themselves and they unleash it in the cause of just for them, there's some real problems with that. It's much easier to see in other people. So the, the first problem with this is what psychologists call illusory superiority. Illusory superiority. And this is, this is such a well-researched phenomenon that um, there's two uh, psychologists that actually got to name an aspect of it, and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And then the Dunning-Kruger effect goes like this. We judge ourselves as better than others to a degree that violates the laws of math. And we all do this. So for example, most Americans believe they're above average in everything from math to looks, from charm to generosity. Couple specific examples. I love this one. 92% of college professors believe they're above average, <laughs> right? It's not possible, <laughs> right? 40% of computer engineers rate themselves in the top 5% of their field. Nine out of 10 Americans believe they give more to charity than average. These are breaking the laws of math, right? When our identity is based on how we compare and compete with others, we tend to be very biased judges. It's a deadly mix of like delusion and arrogance. One political scientist that I listen to sometimes, he talks about political ideology as the deadly combination of these two traits. And he says it equates to public policy like this. I know everything I need to know to fix society, and we're starting with you. You can find that on every channel, right? Ironically, when we see even our best and our brightest like deploy their amazing skill and competence for themselves, even when they achieve their goal, we see this all the time, right? Even when they achieve their goal, they're often surprised by what they find. Two real quick stories, two of my favorite examples. When Pete Rose broke the Ty Cobb's all-time hit record, they interviewed him after the game, and they said, what did it feel like? And this, was, this is exactly what he said. He said, the second my foot hit first base, I was disappointed. Tom Brady, it was after winning his third or fourth Super Bowl, was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And they asked him, what did it feel like? And he said, there's got to be more to life than this. Right? Competence, skill, status, and power deployed for our own benefit not only doesn't work, it will burn us out. Check out these words again if you missed them. There's someone in my reflection that's been haunting, my, haunting me my whole life. There's a world outside my window I can barely even hear. And I wonder to myself, as I'm straightening my bow tie, 
how could I look so perfect on the screen and so awful in the mirror? That is, in my opinion, the third beatitude right there. So beautiful. It's one of the reasons we love art so much here at Storyline. Maybe we can think of it this way. Meekness is not weakness. It is power held in reserve for the benefit of a world that we can hear. Because we don't care about our bow tie. And therefore, we're freed from being haunted by our own reflection or the difference between what others see on the screen when they look at us and what we see in the mirror when we look at ourselves. Man, I don't know about you, but that sounds great to me. Wouldn't that be amazing? Doesn't that sound awesome? It would be so great to just stop feeding that fire that's consuming us from within. Jesus' invitation to meekness is that counterintuitive path. It's how to put that fire out. It's this counterintuitive path to freedom, to a full, abundant, and meaningful life of purpose and peace with a resilient identity that's based on whose we are. So awesome. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, when we think of meekness this way, as the invitation, uh, the, the gift of holding our power, our competence, our resources in reserve for the good of others, now, when we read the first half of that beatitude that way, the thing that just pops off the page for me is inherit, right? It just jumps off the page. Now, what, what is that about? Well, the arrogant and the proud are always exhausted. One of my favorite authors says exhaustion is almost a certain sign of pride. Like if I don't do it, if I don't get it done, the, the world's going to fall apart. You know people like that who are always just drag, always exhausted? You do know someone like that, right? I really struggle with this. It's like, oh, woe is me. And it's really me going, boom, look how important I am. It's so, it's just this sick and twisted way that I just deceive myself. But that's what it is. See, when we think of meekness this way, as the invitation, the gift of holding power, this, and inherit becomes this hugely important idea because the arrogant and the proud, they exhaust themselves. They respond to life like this right? I'm too busy. I'm going to have to call you later. Because they're so busy earning everything. They're so busy earning everything. So therefore, they overestimate themselves with this illusory superiority. And they're on this dreadmill of prove it, of earn it, only to find even when they win, they aren't satisfied. There's got to be more than this. And on the way to winning, they're burning themselves out. They're feeding this fire that they're hoping will die. Gosh, I know that there are a lot of us that resonate with that inside of us. Meekness is the invitation to escape that. One writer put it like this. Deep down, we all know if we win the rat race, you're still just a rat. Right? 
But to inherit something, what's that about? To inherit something, that means this. It's pure gift. It's sheer grace. There is no way to be arrogant about it because you know and everyone knows you didn't get that because of what you've achieved or because of who you are. You simply received it because of whose you are. It's a whole nother way to look at who you are, right? Not that inheritance can't devolve into dysfunction. It can. Inheritance certainly can do that if we receive it in the wrong way. So do you know that recipients of great fortunes, I looked this up because it's not going to happen for me, but recipients of great fortunes, those who inherit enormous wealth, often suffer from severe psychological trauma. They have lower self-esteem. They have higher rates of depression, anxiety, addiction, and suicide than the general population. Unless there's one group of heirs that avoid that. And this is why. There's only one exception. It's when they give it away. It's when they give it away. They leverage their inheritance to serve others. When heirs receive their inheritance as a gift, as sheer grace, and then pass it forward, when they are meek and they serve others with it, they experience enormous life satisfaction. When they keep it all for themselves, their life spirals. One commentator called it, and I love this, the air, air, right? I'm not going to have to worry about that, but some, some of you might, so I thought I'd mention it. Maybe this is why Jesus said, I've come not to, to be served, but to serve. Now, why? Why would Jesus show up like that? Well, I'll quote one of my favorite uh, thinkers. He said it this way. Is Jesus is the happiest being in the universe. Which makes me ask the question, why? What makes Jesus so happy? Maybe it's meekness. Maybe it's because I've come not to be served, but to serve. I wonder if those are connected at all. Meekness, power held in reserve for others, reverses this downward spiral of life being all about me and instead unleashes it into this upward spiral where we are at the bottom looking up at everyone and God. How can we serve them? How can we serve others? Carl Jung, who you guys know I talk about a lot, a famous psychologist, he had this really super interesting idea. This just, I love this so much. He was asked, why is it that so many people search for God their whole life? They struggle to find God their whole life. They look for the source of life. They look for the goal of life, and they never find it. And I think his response gets right to the heart of meekness. This is what he said. Most men don't find God because they don't look low enough. Mitrandir, why the halfling? I don't know. Saruman believes that it is only a great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I've found. I found it is the small things, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love 
Why, Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps it is because I'm afraid. And it gives me courage. Okay. Now, for the record, we've been here four weeks. And that was the first Lord of the Rings scene. I know some of you are counting, okay? Now, that, that is, look, it's still 20. I've got a couple weeks left, and I still have my second one available to me per year that I'm going to squeeze into December, I promise you. So, look, I, I, um, you got to love that. I, I, I absolutely just love it. You know that. Gandalf describing meekness and, and how the lowliest of all creatures, a halfling, a hobbit, um, with loving kindness, with simple acts of loving kindness and generosity, actually inspires courage in other people. And I think that's what the meek do. You just try to imagine entering into your life like that, with meekness, with, with nothing to hide, nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing to lose. Can you just feel that freedom? Can you just feel what that would set you up to look for in life, right? From that state of being, from that posture towards God, with our hands and our hearts open to receive whatever this day brings, and this stance toward life, ready to conduct grace in small, everyday ways to whomever this day brings to us. To me, that sounds amazing. Imagine entering a room like that, where it's no longer about me. It's no longer about establishing my status or touting my expertise. It isn't about what we can get, the renown or, or the accolades that we can get from people in that room, it's only about what we can give, who we can serve, and who we can love. Do you know what a room like that is called? It's called heaven. And for the meek, that's every room they enter because they bring heaven with them into every room because it's in them. It's such a beautiful and freeing promise. Now, I've had several really great conversations with folks who are new to Storyline. They found us here in this space, and that happens often when we move, and you know we've moved a lot, and it's one of the, the best ways to get the, for people to find us. And so I've had a lot of really fun conversations, too, this last week with folks who are just being exposed to Storyline, and somebody asked me this, very observant. They said, you guys use the Bible and music and art and science so much. Why is that? And I, now keep in mind, I'm working on this talk on meekness when this person asked me this question. And so I just kind of went, I think it's because they cultivate meekness. I think all of those things cultivate, cultivate meekness. We use great art and modern science and ancient wisdom because they're all pointing in the same direction. They cultivate a heart that, that is meek. And to me, one of the best definitions of a meek heart is a heart that can, hold, that can hold more than one thing to be true at the same time. More than one thing can be true at the same time. And, and, and a heart like that, mystery can enter into it. Curiosity can come out of it. And those things encourage even more meekness. 
It's easier to see this in the ancient wisdom of the Bible and in the beauty of great music or uh, great scenes from a movie that they encourage meekness. They, they push us to, to, to hold more than one thing to be possibly true at the same time. But I also think science does it. For me, science does it. Now, I'm a social scientist, so when I read studies and I read social science, it makes, it, it cultivates meekness in me. I first realized this when I read the book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. It's a fantastic book. It's basically the history of science. And in it, the author Bill Bryson claims, makes this unbelievable claim. He says, for every one step forward that science takes in knowledge, it simultaneously recognizes that there are two more steps to go. Okay? So these are the two things that are both true at the same time for science. Watch this. We know, we know that we know more than ever. In other words, we've come so far. Look how big that blue circle has grown over time. What science knew there on the left, what science knows now. There's been progress. We've grown, right? But there's a second thing that's true with science also. We now know that we know less of all there is to know than we used to. In other words, we have so far to go. Like the red circle is growing faster than the blue one. And it always will. And that cultivates this meekness. We've come so far and we have so far to go. Those two things can both be true. How I wish the culture warriors in our country could both get around both of these things. Both of these things can be true about our country, about science, about our personal understanding. And so it go, goes for the meek. Great art, ancient wisdom, modern science, they all embody meekness. This idea that two things can be true at the same time. And that's what meekness starts to cultivate in us. And as we grow to trust in God's truth and experience God's goodness and love God's love, we will find that we are being transformed, like we're taking steps forward. That's going to cultivate enormous gratitude in us. And at the same time, it's going to help us to realize that this is all, everything we have is all a gift. And in that, we can celebrate how far we've come, yet also see how far we have yet to go. Because as we get closer to God, we recognize, oh my gosh, what God meant for us to be is much, much further than I ever dared to dream. That, that's what it looks like to grow with a meek heart. Two things can be true at the same time. The meek celebrate God is on our side. This, this first beatitude, you will, if you will, like how far we've come. And they can mourn how far we are from fully being on his side, which is the second beatitude. The meek have a growing awareness that even though I love to love now more than ever, that very same love that's growing in me, that very same love that's growing in me reveals how far love has yet to go and grow 
through me. And this creates even more meekness. It's this beautiful upward spiral that we can put ourselves into. Jesus' approach was so counterintuitive. He comes to a weary world on this dreadmill of us trying to earn everything based on performance and, and behavior and, accept, and, and our acceptance based on achievement. And he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Another time he explained it this way. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. Jesus is inviting us to realize and rest in the knowledge that when we give up trying to earn the earth, we aren't really giving up on anything. Because to live meekly, to share the gifts we've been given for the sake of others is how we inherit, as in free, freely receive all of the good God is trying to give us and to give the world through us. So two things can be true at the same time. The meek can both see that we're tangled up in lies and celebrate that we're being made beautiful. The best example of meekness is, of course, Jesus himself on the cross holding back his power for our benefit, for mine and for yours. And in doing so, the Bible says, he inherits all the earth and everyone in it. And it's an inheritance that he intends to pass on to us if we'll receive it. And the meek will because they know they don't deserve it. They know they haven't earned it. And this is why only the meek will answer the call of God the only way we can. I might not be there yet, but let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place, for this opportunity to be together. Your invitation to us, um, it, it is so counterintuitive. I'm so thankful for your patience as we sort this out together, what it looks like to answer your call, what it lives like to respond to your grace. So thank you for being patient with us. I pray that this week you would give us opportunities 
to um, see how meekness not only frees us from the treadmill or the dreadmill of life, but it opens us up to serving others, to a true experience of the abundant life that we long for. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. Hope to see you next week. Thank you.